The Athletic. Golazzo is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favorite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. Today on Galazzo, another journey back in time to when Inter went Teutonic and Supersonic with the Tre Tedeschi, Klinzi, Bremer and Mateus, the most successful hair transplant Milan has ever seen. Woohoo! Hello, calcistically minded listener. It's me, James Richardson. I'm joined as ever, by James Horncastle. Ciao. Ciao, ciao, Jimbo. And also, very special guest today, Raphael Honigstein. Hi, Raphael. Ciao, bello. Ciao, ciao. <laughs> Do me. <laughs> Raphael, I don't know if you've been you know, following particularly our, our Golazzo series, but this is a little time we take uh, to talk amongst ourselves about the good old days when when Italian football was really, really special, and so were German footballers. Mm, they were indeed, James. The golden days of the late 80s, early 90s. Well, right. So these three Germans that we're going to talk about today, are pretty diverse trio. Uh, that's diverse, not divers, although in one of, them's, one of the cases. <laughs> but still, <laughs> uh, three Germans who arrived. Shaking his head. <laughs> three Germans who, who made Inter winners against some of the most remarkable odds ever seen in football, I would say, arriving in a league which featured the three Dutchmen at Milan, Maradona at Napoli, so many stars, and turning into, into not just winners, but a record-breaking side. Rafa, were you following Inter once Matthias and, and Andy Bremer had gone across to, to Milan? Were you following? Were people in Germany following Inter Milan? I was, and yes, they were. Inter became my Italian team for, for a short while because I was a huge fan of Lota in particular. Um, uh, really the player, I think, that everyone looked up to uh, at the time in Germany because of his all-action um, you know, persona. He was kind of a, a German Roy Keane, um, the way he played. He was just sensational. And yeah, Inter with a sexy shirts and these wonderful um, fans in the stadium felt very exotic and it became, I'm sure, a well-supported team across Germany as a result. Mm. A great kit, wasn't it? Classic Amazing. blue and black stripes with the Misura uh, sponsor. To what extent was the arrival in 88 of Matthäus and Bremer with Klinsmann to, to follow a season later? To what extent was that Inter's response to the extraordinary Dutchman across town, James? Well, I don't think they decided to go with Germans just because they had a track record of beating the Dutch at World Cup finals. Um, yeah, they'd already gone German um, before, earlier in the decade, um, signing Hansi Muller uh, mm. and also uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Hansi Muller, it didn't work out too well, no. No sooner had he arrived than he released... I don't know if you've ever heard the record that he, that he made, Calcio di Rigore. Calcio di rigore Ma che bel partiere Parte una stangata 1 a 0 Hai vinto tu Bacio di rigore Mmm, bacio di rigore 
a German making a, a, a song about penalty kick. I mean, that's... that's. Well, yeah, actually. But um, for that and other reasons, he was slapped in the face by Spillo Altabelli, and I don't think he ever really connected with the rest of the team. Uh, Pellegrini, who we'll come on to very, very shortly, uh, moved him on soon after. But as you mentioned, uh, Kali Rummenigge coming in uh, slightly later on and uh, not having perhaps the impact, but you, you tell the, the story of uh, their, 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 their predilection for Germans. Well, so Inter had won the league title in, in 1980. Uh, and why this is important is because it was, I think, the last time that a, an all-Italian team had, had, had uh, lifted the, uh, the Scudetto. If you can lift a Scudetto, it's actually something you stitch uh, on your shirt. And there was, this, there was this sense that despite their name, Internazionale, a club that had been founded to, to basically uh, you know, accept um, players of foreign descent to come and play for them. Um, there was this feeling within the club that when they did sign foreign players, it tended to go wrong. And we've mentioned Hansi Muller. Um, you alluded to uh, Spilo Altabelli's slap, um, which you know he, he didn't take too kindly to Hansi not passing him the ball. Um, Evaristo Becalossi, who was the kind of number 10 of, uh, of Inter at the time, uh, didn't like basically the fact that the club signed him because... Muller played in his position and uh, Beccolossi kind of called him the chair. Um, oh, no, he said he would rather play with a chair uh, than, than Hansi Muller because at least if you hit the ball at a chair, you might get it back, uh, instead of, which is slightly bizarre. Uh, and then they signed Kali Rummenigge. And uh, Rummenigge, I think, was uh, 30 or, or thereabouts. Um, had won the Ballon d'Or in, in 1980 1981. Um, and... Uh, you know, had been a part of that West Germany side that had got to the World Cup final in 82. Um, his new teammate, Beppe Begami, had marked him in that game. And there were great expectations that Rummenigge uh, would be the guy who would uh, come in and, and score as many goals as he had in Germany. I think he'd been top scorer three times um, in the Bundesliga. And he did okay, but injuries really kind of uh, let him down. I mean, he scored some spectacular goals, James. I mean... We should recommend Golazzo listeners to go and check out just some of the bicycle kicks Rummenigge was responsible for in his uh, in his days with the Nerazzurri. There's one against Torino. And there's one Zlatan-esque taekwondo kind of uh, uh, goal which was disallowed. Uh, a great injustice against Rangers where he kind of lets it go over his shoulder and then does something that I've only seen in one of those kind of crouching tiger hidden dragon films. And it was... It was disallowed for uh, dangerous play and high boot. Uh, crazy, crazy. Mm. Rangers have got at the refs again, as was so often the case in their clashes with Italian <laughs> sides. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, did, he didn't actually win anything at Inter, although he did ha- provide one or two golden memories. But the, the three Germans who arrived at the end of the 80s were to produce a paradigm shift in that club's fortunes. To tell their story, uh, let's head back... Uh, to a little bit earlier on in that decade, a simpler time. We're living like in a Dolce Vita. Mm, gonna dream tonight. We're dancing like in a Dolce Vita. Nobody else than you. Rafa, do you remember Dolce Vita? We're living mm-hmm. like in the Dolce, Dolce Vita. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, El Freunde magazine did a magazine um, edition on uh, Germans in the 80s in in Serie A uh, because ah, it was a bit of a time. And uh, it was called Deutsche Vita, which <laughs> I thought was very nice. Brilliant. And nice, it had Hans-Peter nice. Briegel 
on the cover yeah. in a little boat, I think, that he must have had right. uh, when he was playing at Hellas. Right. Thomasina Hessler, was he in there? Yeah, yeah, they were all in there, yeah. Well, as I say, it was a simpler time, the 1980s. A uh, time initially of economic boom, of huge optimism, of the, the revival of the, the Italian game and of Italian songwriting. Ryan Paris there, uh, a fine example of that. Black Boxer just around the corner as well. But anyway, among those enjoying the boom times was one Ernesto Pellegrini, businessman and handwriting enthusiast who built a hospitality empire from scratch, whose catering company used to do the honours at Villa Perosa, the Agnelli's summer residence. In 1984, Pellegrini bought Inter, leading to the immortal quote from Gianni Agnelli to Boniberti, have you seen, Giampiero, our cook has bought Inter. Pellegrini didn't enjoy the joke, and was determined to make them a force again. The first step was bringing in Trapattoni in 86. Yeah, Trap uh, and was seen quite ironically uh, by, by Interisti, and, and including so, some of the players, like uh, Walter Zenga, for example, who was uh, like an Inter-Ultra, um, just wearing gloves, you know, just in the way that uh, Buffon often has, has, has come across as being a bit of an ultra. Zenga certainly was in those days. Um, and... Uh, he said, look, you know, uh, of course, uh, to get into to win again, it took someone who uh, had made his name at Milan uh, as a player and made his name as a coach uh, with the Gobby, the hunchbacks uh, over in uh, over at Juventus. And yeah, Trap had won everything. I mean, we've done a couple of shows on on uh, on Trap's coaching career, but uh, there was nothing he hadn't done. You know, he'd won the Cup Winners' Cup, UEFA Cup, the the European Cup, albeit with the, in the tragic back, backdrop of Heysel. Probably the the strongest Juventus side that's that's ever been with um, Platini Boniek and much of the the players who won the World Cup with Italy in 1982. And uh, I suppose as one of his uh, pupils uh, back when he had another spell at Juventus, Antonio Conte, has uh, kind of followed in the footsteps of Trap in 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 going from Juventus to Inter. And uh, yeah, I think one of the the fascinating things about about Trapp's uh, time uh, at San Siro on the blue and black uh, sponda, as they say, on the blue and black bank of the uh, Navillo River, is that he didn't win instantly. You know, it took him. It took him some time, um, and uh, that's because Inter is a club like no other. In that uh, he said it's like a uh, centrifuga. You know, it's like a centrifuge, which just it's like a whirlpool, which just sucks so much stuff. Um, into it, which uh, distractions, all these kind of news stories, which make it a really difficult team and club to manage. Um, that unless you're a manager that has a really strong personality, who's able to get the team that you want, um, it's very difficult to do. And you know, that's why I think people, when they look back at Inter's history, you almost need to be a, a manager all'inglese, you know, sort of uh, kind of English style coach um, who takes control of absolutely everything. Um, you can't mm. leave nothing to chance, and that was the case with Herrera, Mourinho, and Trapp. Trapp arrives in '86, as you say. Success is not immediate, but in 1988, the club, perhaps slightly in response to the wave of sets of foreign players that had swept through Syria, decide to head off to Bavaria and pick themselves up a couple of really choice foreign stars. In they go to Bayern Munich, and away they come with arguably Rafa, the heart of that side, the title-winning side from the Bundesliga. How were they able to do that? Well, they were able to do that because at the time, uh, 
Bayern Munich, even as the wealthiest club in, in Germany, could not compete with Inter's wages, uh, let alone the transfer fees that they paid. In fact, the Rummenigge deal, I think, which cost 8.3 million marks at the time, a few years earlier, had effectively saved Bayern from bankruptcy. Um, so it was a very, very important deal for Bayern that really helped them grow and and gave them the funds that built that team that won three titles in a row that Lothar Mateos led. So it was almost inevitable, I think, at the time that when you are approaching superstar status, you were going to Italy. It was the expected thing almost in Germany that, you know, these players, they're, they're too good to, to stick around. And even Bayern couldn't keep them. Pellegrini, I think, had made attempts to bring Mateus in a couple of years before. Mateus himself has also said that um, Maradona sent three or four people to his home in Munich with a suitcase full of money, a million marks. This is according to Lothar. He says, in 1987, uh, Diego sent three or four people to my house in, in Munich with a briefcase full of cash, a million marks, and asked me to sign for Napoli. Interesting, uh, interesting negotiating tactics in those Very days. Very interesting. It didn't work it out. It didn't work out. I wonder what happened to that suitcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real, for real. But in 1988, he did make the move across. Now, for anyone who isn't familiar with Lothar Matthias's career or whose view on it has perhaps been a little obscured by what happened after he retired, his attempts to become a manager, etc. Let's just remind ourselves how great a player he was. One of the greatest midfielders of all time, no? Without a doubt, James. I remember going to games in the Olympic Stadium where Matthias played three or four positions at the same time. You know, he was... He was a deep midfielder, he was an 8, he was a 10. And I remember one particular game where he was basically in the opposition box all the time. I mean, unbelievable quality, force of personality, uh, scored goals with his left foot on his right, even with headers, even though he wasn't the tallest of guys. And yeah, by by far the most influential midfielders of the, of the 80s in, in Germany. And um, a huge, huge loss for Bayern and, and for German football and I mean, domestic football, but almost inevitable, as we said earlier, that he was going to go to, to Serie A because he had reached superstar status and the only place he could go from there was to go to Italy. Mm. And he had possibly his greatest seasons ever uh, while at, at San Siro. Coming with him, meantime, was the left-back Andres Bremer, who people didn't know so much about. Gianni Mura, for example, uh, writing in La Repubblica at the time, uh, saying, se Mateus era la bistecca, Bremer era l'osso che andava presso la ciccia. If Mateus was the steak, Bremer was the was the bone that came with a bit of fat attached. Which, um, yeah, it's an interesting way of defining a player who himself was voted Serie A's Footballer of the Year. Tell us about Andy Bremer, Rafa. Well, I think that um, that quote uh, was something that probably um, what's his name, Mura. Yeah, Jenny Moura. Jenny Moura came to regret because Bremer was was an unbelievable um, left back or wing back. Sometimes you know Germany playing often in a in a system with sweepers, so he was more than a defender. He was often a wide midfielder, effectively, and very famous for the distribution on his left foot. I I, I read um, just a few moments ago before we started recording that. He had 33 long passes in the final against Argentina and every single one of them connected. So tremendously uh, reliable, his distribution fantastic, great engine as well. 
and perhaps most famously, of course, he was um, almost completely ambidextrous, took free kicks with the right, took penalties with the right um, or the left. He himself didn't apparently know which foot was the stronger one. So if you had a wide player who was able to cut in uh, on a foot that was just as good as as the one he was playing on uh, sidewise, uh, made him a very, very special player. And I think um, his, his real quality was soon recognised in Inter and, and elsewhere. Mm. City had player of the year for that season, that first season there, uh, with the Nerazzurri, 88-89, where he formed uh, Difesa di Ferro, an absolutely unbeatable uh, defensive line with Walter Zenger in goal. You had uh, Riccardo Ferri there. And, well, you uh, said Eddie it was like Bergman. an ironclad line. I mean, when you've got Fedi in there, there you go. Nice. <laughs> nice, yeah. Well, with Bremer arriving with the Mateus installed at the heart of everything and with other acquisitions along the lines of Ramon Diaz and also uh, Nicola Berti into we're all set for what would turn out to be the season of records. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. It's 1988. Busy time in Italy. Interfan Vasco Rossi here with his ode to the dangerous life, una vita spericolata, had just been done for huge amounts of cocaine. Uh, in football terms, the Dutch had just won the Euros. Milan had won the Italian title. Inter hadn't won anything in eight years. But now Matthias and Bremer had arrived with a really, really strong lineup uh, around them. Mentioned some of the players coming in. And the way that they began that season, James, was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, right from the get-go. Um, yeah, they, they don't lose a game until I think February, um, at least in the league. Yeah, and yeah, this was pretty much unheard of um, in Italy. I mean, we've we've had teams that uh, go on undefeated seasons um, before. I mean, before this, it was Perugia under I think the former Inter coach Ilario Castagna, um, who was the guy who um, I think Trap took over from at Inter, um, and uh, that team drew a lot of games. Um, this team won a lot of games. I mean, in terms of in, in terms of points, I think. They only dropped uh, maybe eleven points all season, which is just ridiculous. I mean, part part of the reason why it's eleven points is because it's still the two points for a win era in an eighteen team league. Um, and I do think this achievement of um, of setting this 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 record points total is not as talked about as much as it should be, at least outside of Italy. You know, we, when you know, when we tend to think of these these great feats, um, it's usually Milan's Invincibles uh, under, under Fabio Capello. Um, and, you know, maybe because we've moved to a 20-team league with three points for a win, this kind of gets lost in the shuffle for a bit. But Inter were, were so dominant in, uh, in what was, you know, we've always already mentioned how competitive the league was, but given the standing that Milan team has in the game, as being, you know, one of the three teams the last 50 years to push football forward uh, with Renus Michels' Ajax and more recently Pep's Barcelona. Um, to knock them off their perch, James, was quite something. It certainly was. 
first 16 games of the season, as you say, they did not lose. They only conceded five goals in those 16 matches. They didn't lose until February the 12th in Florence when they came out the wrong end of a seesaw seven-goal thriller with Fiorentina. 4-3 it ended. Napoli, who were their biggest rivals, had a slight glimmer of hope perhaps after that result, but Inter responded by winning their next eight Serie A games, including a 6-0 thrashing of Bologna. By the end of May, even though there were four games to go, it was already match point to the Nerazzurri. They needed one more win. They were about to face their rivals, Napoli, with Maradona and Careca at San Siro on the 28th of May, 1989. Milan had just won the European Cup four days before. Careca actually opened up the scoring for uh, the Neapolitan visitors at San Siro on that Sunday afternoon. But it wasn't long before Nicola Berti, who'd knocked one off Luca Fusi uh, to equalise. And then, who else should score the winner but Lothar Mateus and Inter were champions. The margin of victory, 11 points, a record, as you say, for an 18 team, two points for a win season. 58 points, their total also a record. 26 wins in that time, only two defeats, 67 goals scored, only 19 conceded. Remarkable stuff. One of the few defeats they'd had along the way was when they took on Bayern Munich in the UEFA Cup. Rafa, that must have been sweet for Bayern, having just lost two of their stars. It was. I mean, it was a classic, classic tie. Uh, a very young Bayern team would have had the likes of Olaf Torn playing midfield, were beaten 2-0 in Munich and basically thought they were out. Uh, this was a time when if you didn't win your home game, you were basically considered to be already eliminated. And I remember so well the return leg because it wasn't on German television, uh, it wasn't live, so you had to listen on the radio and then you could see only highlights at 11 o'clock. And it turned into one of the all-time great Bayern Munich performances in European competition um, when they beat Inter 3-1 in San Siro. They took a 3-0 lead and then held out, even though they conceded one more goal. And Raymond Aumann, who was by then in goal, for Jean-Marie Pfaff, who'd moved on, had his best and, and most heroic and legendary night uh, for Bayern in goal because uh, Matthias in particular created a lot of chances uh, and Almond was just was just superb. Palla che si impenna. Ancora colpo di testa da parte di Coso, poi una parata miracolosa di Aumann. Nobody really talks about that game in Italy. They talk a lot about the first leg yeah. and Nicola Berti's, Nicola Berti's extraordinary run where he does a, a sort of a, a George Ware, a Maradona, if you want, runs pretty much the length of the field in the snow of, of Munich and then finishes. I, I mean, it's his most famous goal, James, one that has become iconic there. Berti! 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 Tiro! Ricardo Ferri saying afterwards that it became a real issue because having scored that once, <laughs> Bertie tried to do that every time he got a hold of the ball in midfield. I was, I was at the game in Munich. You were? Mm. So you saw Bertie's, Bertie's goal? Yeah, I, I can't say I remember it that well. I think my, my mind is blanked out at the feet, but I would have been in the stadium. All right, then. Well, the European misadventures aside, it was an extraordinary performance in league terms. Why was it, though, so short-lived, James? Well, 
you've talked to some of the players, the Italian players. I think that the club moved some of the guys on too early. Um, and this is quite interesting because this whole podcast is about the the three Germans. Um, and uh, I know Ricardo Ferri um, thinks that they, they shouldn't have sold Ramon Diaz uh, as quickly as, as they did. And, you know, he would have been, it would have been better uh, to keep him as part of the side instead of bringing in Klinsmann. And that's not to say that Klinsmann was a bad player or an ineffective player for Inter. Um, they just felt that um, what they had going on in 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 um, eighty eight eighty nine was was so damn good, and I suppose then you have then you have the uh, the competitiveness of the league because it's not just the teams that we've mentioned in uh, you know in nineteen ninety be uh, the kind of swan song of uh, Maradona's Napoli, um, and then you have this kind of very young uh, Sampdoria side just mature. Um, after kind of playing together for uh, for eight years or so and winning more or less everything else, you know, Coppa Italia, the um, they you know, reached finals in Europe, Cup Winners Cup. Um, so I think it was just a, it was just a measure of uh, how strong the league was in those days. The other thing I, I suppose, which is really kind of dumbfounding about this this Inter team, is just it's just how poor they were in Europe. Um, you know, I think this 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 is often uh, the case in a kind of pre-Champions League, pre-group stage tournament, where the potential for shocks was was so much so much more. You know, they go out to Roy Hodgson's Malmo um, as as champions in one of the kind of most infamous nights in, in Inter's history, um, along with what when they they lost to Helsingborg. I mean, there there, there are a few in recent history. I think. Um, was it drawing or losing to Hapoel Ben Belsheva? I, I can't even pronounce. I can't even remember what that team is called. Um, um, but yeah, it is, it is surprising that even when they kept the Germans together for another couple of years and added Klinsmann, um, that uh, the only kind of trophy that they added was was the the UEFA Cup in 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 ninety one. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's I think it's a, it's a measure of just how how good the league was at the time. 89-90, they finished up third, as you say, knocked out right at the start of their European Cup campaign by Malmo. That season, though, was to end with some extraordinary success for the three Germans in Italy, although not for Inter. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. James Holcaster joining Gianna Nannini and Eduardo Benato there for Onestate Italiana. Very much the theme in Italy of Italian 90, that most cherished of World Cups. It was in Italy. It was actually a terrible World Cup. Well, was it though? Football-wise. 
West Germany didn't have a, a bad World Cup at all. And although the final against Argentina with Andy Bremer spraying those deep passes and also scoring the World Cup winning goal in it, it wasn't the best of matches with which to conclude the tournament. West Germany's opening to their campaign was... One of the big highlights, no? Rafa, were you at that game as well? I wasn't, no, James. I didn't go to the uh, to the World Cup. Um, I would have been a little bit uh, too young. But I remember um, Bill's headline after that 4-1 win against Yugoslavia. It said, Danke, Franz, für diese Liebesnacht. Which go translates on. at, thank you, Franz, in relation to Franz Beckenbauer, for this night of love. Well, there you go. Ooh. It was it was a pretty special game. 4-1 against not just any side, but Yugoslavia, who probably came in as, I don't know what the odds were in those days. but I would hazard a guess that Jonathan Wilson had them down as the dark horses for that tournament. Right. Well, there you go. That was until they met Lothar Mateus and Co. Mateus in particular had an absolute blinder. You talk about him playing four or five different positions. and This game, a great example of that, shutting down Stojkovic, but at the same time managing to score a brace. Klinsman scores as well. And West Germany uh, got off to an extraordinary uh, start to the season. Uh, when you look at that campaign, possibly helped by the fact that three of the stars were already playing their football in, in Italy. Were they kind of the key? Were they at the heart of, of that West Germany World Cup winning uh, tournament? Yeah, absolutely. Um, together with Rudi Völler up front and Jürgen Kohler at the back, that was that was the spine. But it was a it was a team and a dressing room full of, of big players. I think that was the secret to this team. They had all won things at club level. They were all big personalities. And Beckenbauer, um, having been slightly less patient in in previous tournaments I think had found a slightly more relaxed way of dealing with them and they had a lot of time off for example and they would go you know for a trip to Milan or they would go and just have a a time off and they seemed to enjoy being with each other and and being in Italy and yeah they they had a very good team and of course they fulfilled their potential. Mateus does the reverse Maradona in that, you know, Maradona won the World Cup in 86 and that kind of gave the Napoli players the belief that it was going to be their year the following year in 87. Whereas, uh, see, Mateus wins it in, at the league in 89 and peaks, I would say, in, in, in 1990. Um, also because even in the season of, uh, in his, what would be his third season, so 1990 to 91, um, at Inter um, that's probably his best season from a statistical point of view he scores 23 goals in all competitions which for someone in Italy playing in his position in midfield is pretty much unheard of the funny thing was that in Germany at the time before this uh, tournament in Italy uh, Mateus was still being seen as somebody who doesn't quite do it at the highest level He'd had a very poor European Cup final in 1987 against Porto, which Bayern lost. Bayern hadn't won an international trophy. Germany hadn't won an international trophy. So for all the dominance that he was able to uh, to show uh, regularly at club level, that big trophy was still eluding him. Um, and in Germany, people were still having sort of casting aspersions at him. And it all changed, of course, in the course of the, uh, those few weeks in Italy in that summer. 
I mean, James, uh, to go back to your question about, you know, why wasn't this Inter team able to repeat um, in the league, um, you know, t- towards the end of, of Mateus's time uh, at San Siro, um, you know, he was going back and forth between Milan and Switzerland uh, to see to see his girlfriend Lolita Morena, um, and and Trap Trap apparently could see that it was affecting his performances. And, you know, would go into the car park at Appiano Gentile, where Inter's training ground is, and kind of check the mileage on his car to see if he'd been sort of, uh, he'd been traveling uh, a lot. But Mateus had so many cars, apparently, he just kept turning up in different ones or was using using another vehicle to, to go to Switzerland. So uh, that's kind of one of the other reasons why that uh, incredible Inter side maybe didn't hit the, the same heights. It was busy hitting other things, yes. <laughs> In a variety Ooh. of motor vehicles. Now, on the subject, though, so Mateus had an extraordinary World Cup and consecrated his, his, his status in the World Game. Klinsmann, what was it, three goals in that tournament? And that was a feat he would repeat at later World Cups as well. But Andy Bremer, given his extraordinary numbers and the, the way he influences, you mentioned his passing stats in the final, he scores the, the winner. He's, he scored three goals, which is not bad for a left-back in, in a World Cup in a particularly low-scoring World Cup as well. He scored against Holland in the quarterfinals. He scored, of course, the free kick that deflects off Paul Parker against England in the semi-final, and then the, the winning penalty against Argentina. Why does he not enjoy, and, and possibly he does in Germany, but why elsewhere do you think he's he's gone a little bit forgotten among the pantheon of greats? I don't know about forgotten. I mean, people do remember him as an integral part of that World Cup winning squad, but... I mean, fullbacks or, or wingbacks don't quite have the same stature. They don't quite have the same glamour attached to them. I mean, um, if you think of Philip Lahm, who, if anything, surpassed Bremer, I think in 10 years' time, you know, people in Germany will appreciate him, but he will probably not be the first name that people will mention when it comes to, you know, great players of the of the century or of the, of the decade. So... I think there's something in the position that your your very dependability and the fact that you are playing without flaws rather than with big moments that stick in the memory, stick in the mind, um, makes makes those kind of players just slightly less memorable. It's just uh, a function of their game, I think. Mm. Although, you know, scoring the goal which wins the World Cup final is that a pretty big is moment. still, yeah, mm. continues. And there's a whole story around this, but I don't know if you want to talk about this now. Well, go later. ahead. So, Mateus was due to take the penalty, famously, but he had broken a stud in his shoe and had changed his, his boots and just didn't feel entirely happy with his new, his new boots and then left it to Andreas Bremer, who was so secure and confident. And th- there's two, two parts of the stories. One is that people in Germany, I think, have kind of later on looked at this and think, was this really smart for Mateus? Was this sort of the, the sign of a mature leader to know your own insecurities effectively and make way for somebody that you trust more? Or was this another occasion where he seemed to kind of disappear from the biggest stage when it really mattered? That was a an accusation leveled at him in the wake of the 1999 final that Bayern had lost against um, Manchester United, where he gets substituted five minutes from the end and Mehmet Scholl said, oh, Mateus always goes missing when it really um, comes down to it. So there's there's all of that uh, mixed up in, in it. But at the same time, 
I thought it was um, it's quite funny because as if the pressure wasn't big enough on Andreas Bremer, um, Rudi Völler steps up to him and says, remember Andy, if you score, we win the World Cup. <laughs> Which, you know, didn't prove detrimental, but perhaps could have, could have gone the other way. Remarkable. Well, at the end of that year, uh, Andy Bremer places third in the Ballon d'Or voting, but it's won by Lothar Matez, who is, who remains, the only player ever to win the Ballon d'Or while playing his football for Inter. Anyway, what came next? We'll talk about that after this. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So, 1990-91, Matthias has his best season ever, statistically guiding Inter to a long-awaited European success in the UEFA Cup over Roma. Klinsmann doesn't have a good time at all. He doesn't actually score a goal until December and wants to quit the team, uh, supposedly over his uh, differences of opinion with Trapattoni. As it turns out, Inter themselves will make changes at the end of the year. Trapattoni moves on and the players take their leave of Italy as well. Andy Bremer goes to Real Saragossa. Matthias returns to Bayern Munich and perhaps influenced by his four years in Italy becomes a libero. As for Klinsmann, he goes to loads of places. Monaco, uh, Tottenham, Bayern again, Sampdoria, Tottenham once more. Uh, Orange County Blue Stars as well under an assumed name in the early noughties. Jay Goppingen. That's the one. And of course, James, you mentioned, you know, was signing the, the three Germans or staggering those uh, three Germans uh, a response to uh, to Milan's Dutchman? Well, I don't think it was, but you know what you see post Trapattoni when they appoint Corrado uh, Orico, um, sort of a guy who I suppose you can compare with Saki insofar that this guy had had only once coached in a long coaching career in Serie A and had been sacked like half uh, halfway through a season with Udinese. But played zone uh, and also like had all these kind of really innovative ideas, like we're going to train in a cage, and then they signed what Dennis Bergkamp and Wim Yonk under uh, under Bagnoli, um, and neither of them, uh, well, particularly Bergkamp, uh, they really struggle. Um, wh- whereas I suppose you know Hullet Van Basten, Reika, they kind of for at least a, a, a one or two more years. Uh, still very much uh, on top um, in uh, in Serie A, very much symbolic of that that uh, Milan team is, that kept on winning under Fabio Capello. Mm. Although they got rid of their Dutchman as well. It's curious how that period when all the clubs wanted to have either three players from a certain nation or at least with some kind of vague genetic similarity, at least, you know. Well, I'd never looked at, at, at uh, Juventus post-Platini uh, as the... Uh, as the Juventus of the Sovietici, mm. the, the Soviets of Juventus, you know, with uh, Zavarov and Elenichev, and, uh, and or is it Elenikov? Can't remember. I always get them mixed up. But um, yeah, that you you had to you had to have a a, a block of uh, of players from a one particular country or federation in that mm. case. Yeah, or in the case of Napoli, a kind of a South American flair trio with uh, Careca and Maradona, and and well, sort of sort of Alamal, though he doesn't really fit into that category quite so much. Uh, they did try with other Germans, 
Rafa, posted about your Klinsman, Bremer and Mateus. Uh, Mateus Sammer was there for all of 11 games. This was pre him winning the Ballon d'Or. And also Lucas Podolski, who pitched up much, much later on loan from Arsenal, managed a whopping 17 matches for Nerazzurri. Any others that I'm missing out on? No, that's it. That's, yeah, Poldi was the, the first one after Sammer. So, yeah, there's there's not been any others. All right. Well, when you've had the best, hard really to make do with, with anybody else. Are Inter still popular with you, Rafa, and with German football fans? Well, I personally still have a soft spot for them. I don't know if I can speak for the rest of, of Germany, but I think I would say historically they would have some support, but perhaps not quite as much as Juve, who I think are probably the number one team outside Italy as far as Italian and non-Italian support is concerned. And when you rank them against, whether it's other trios from other countries or just generally the imports, which started to flood Syria after the late 80s, how would you rank that, that set of acquisitions, James? Oh, I think uh, right up there at the top. I mean, I always find it interesting at the moment, um, the last couple of years, really, Beppe Bedgumi, um, who is the captain of, of that team, um, you know, has, has always been asked, you know, what what do Inter need? What what are they missing uh, to to win the title again um, on the Conte or even before that under Spalletti? And he always mentions a kind of Mateus style figure, and he, he's not just talking about the guy that Mateus was on the pitch um, in terms of this box to box player, but someone that you could you could look across at in the tunnel and and find reassurance. You know that that. You know, Lothar was it was always going to be okay as long as he was on the pitch. He was confident that they were going to win, so they should be confident that they were going to win. And having personalities like that, so I do think in Italy it seems like certainly more than more so than in other countries they have the cult of the campione. You know, you have to have a champion on your team, and I would say Mateus um, is. It's very symbolic of, of that, at least at uh, at least at Inter, um, as as being. I mean, if if we're talking about their a team that is called Internazionale, that you know became what over the last decade, you know, the first team to kind of field an all foreign um, eleven, has had plenty of incredible foreign players. I think you know Mateus is is in terms of Inter's um, pantheon of of all time greats, is definitely in there. No, I mean uh, certainly had had a, had a uh, a more decisive impact on the team um, than, say, even the original Ophenomeno Ronaldo, who who didn't win the league, um, who wasn't wasn't able to get them past a Berlusconi's Milan or a Lippi's Juventus. Um, so, Modric's Juventus. I, I think in that, <laughs> yeah, in that respect, um, right uh, right up there, James. Right up there. Right. And the success may not have lasted, but it was perhaps the most impressive of all, given, as we mentioned before, the league that it came against, the league of Maradona, of Hullet, and so many other stars. Alrighty. Wow. Many thanks, Rafa, for joining us then for this special look back at the Tre Tedeschi. Crookie. Grazie a voi. Prego, prego, Rafa. And many thanks as well to James Horncastle. We'll return with another Golazzo soon. If you got anything you'd like us to talk about, why not get in touch? For now, though, as we sign off with Interista Doc Vasco Rossi with La Bene Così, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. Arrivederci.
You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Athletic.